This is I Was There, gigs that change the world. Well, the Great Rock Festival is now history, the last of the nearly half million young people who traveled to Bethel, New York during the weekend have now departed, and the dairy farm where they listen to three days of rock music is quiet, except for the normal sounds of cows mooing. It's all over, except for the massive cleanup job that remains. The Woodstock Music and Art Fair, having done its thing, quietly folds its tent and steals away till another day. Episode 6 Woodstock The 15th to the 18th of August, 1969 It's one small step for man One giant leap for mankind. From Dallas, Texas The flash, apparently official President Kennedy died some 38 minutes ago. Thousands of demonstrators opposed to the Vietnam War assembled in the nation's capital for a mass protest. Bobby Erkeline. That time in 1969 was a very tumultuous time. There was so much division in our country between the war and uh, civil rights protests and um, the Democratic uh, Convention riots. We were such a divided country. Nick Erkeline. I mean, I, I lost friends in Vietnam in the war, but for the most part, that's when I met my love of my life and my best friend and my partner here. Yul McAlkinen. The issues seemed so clear-cut to us, I think, in that moment. Civil rights, Vietnam... The so-called counterculture was basically people that just didn't look like everybody else did at that time. There was a lot of change going on. Chip Monk. Well, the activity in America at that time, the landing on the moon, the turmoil, the war, the fact that the military and the police were total enemies, it was a difficult time. The art and the music was so inextricably intertwined with the political and social climate. The first time I really heard about Woodstock before the festival, when I heard the word Woodstock, was the fact that a lot of the artists that I admired, like Bob Dylan, et cetera, et cetera, had lived in Woodstock, so it had a reputation as an artist community. Now, of course, we know that the Woodstock Festival was not in Woodstock. It was up in Bethel, New York. Bob Gruen. In June and July, I remember seeing an advertisement in the newspaper for the Woodstock Festival. And I was a major fan of The Who. And I saw The Who in the middle of the list of a bunch of great artists, and I thought, I'll go see The Who. And I wrote out a check and I mailed it away for tickets that I still have, because it turned out nobody ever collected our tickets. <laughs> Thinking about what was happening with the scene in general in 1969, Jefferson Airplane was at sort of at the peak of our game in that moment. And, you know, they were doing a lot of festivals in that time, but we got a chance to go to the Woodstock site a couple of weeks before it actually happened and to see those massive rolling hills and the big stage and all the things that didn't work quite the way they'd planned, but at the time looked incredible. We knew it was going to be a special festival. Burke Herzl. Before we went up there, we were hearing a lot about what a great music festival it would be. And people were saying it would probably be wind up being a, a disaster. We just really didn't know what to expect. But uh, my wife and two children and I 
decided to have a go at it. Well, uh, it was 50 years ago, and I'm 80 now, so that means I would have been 30 years old. And my two sons were nine and 10. We went because we wanted to go as a family and, and just spend a day and hear some songs. And so we decided to just go in and uh, have a good time. I don't think we really had any idea the significance of what did and didn't happen was going to have. And the tickets were $18 for three days. $18 was a lot of money to us. However, the Friday night of the opening concert, we were sitting on my porch, Nick, myself, our best bud, Jim Corky Corcoran, Kathy and Mike. And we were talking about it, listening to the radio. And the commentator said, boy, if you plan on coming, don't bother. Do not come. Well, we were 20. We took that as a challenge and we had to go. How do you pass up a, a crowd of three to 400,000, what they were saying at the time, and it's like in your backyard and not, not witness it? By Thursday, we were hearing reports on the radio that it was too crowded, that the roads were totally packed, that nobody could get near the site. And so my friend called me in the early evening Thursday and he said, man, you gotta get here. This is the coolest place I've ever been to. It's just amazing. And I said, but on the radio, they say you can't even get there, that the roads are crowded and there's no space to even put up a tent. And he said, no, man, we got plenty of space for you to put a tent and we'll hold it for you. And I said, well, how am I gonna find you? But then my friend said he's camped right next to the free food. And I said, well, I can find the free food. <laughs> so we leave Middletown, New York and head towards where this concert that the radio and television people are telling us not to go. Well, we ran into a, a roadblock and the police wouldn't let us even try to get through. So we turned ourselves around and we actually headed away from it and then went up the Delaware River until we figured that we were pretty close to it and we just made a right-hand turn and over the river and through the woods we went and that's basically what we did with a 1965 Chevrolet Impala station wagon. And it probably took us uh, from 9 o'clock in the morning until about 1 o'clock in the afternoon to actually get to the site, which is only about 40 miles away from here. We had to leave our car probably three, four, five miles away, as did hundreds of thousands of other people. And we walked for the last few miles. As you're walking on these small back country roads, everywhere you look, in fields, in woods, on people's yards, in the medians of the roads, alongside of the road, cars pulled off and people getting out and starting to walk in one direction, going to this concert. I mean, we got there early. By then, there was an enormous traffic jam. And we no sooner got in, amazing big mob scene. Very, very, very crowded. So who knew? Well, you know, we, we just really didn't know that it would happen like that. But, but it did. 450,000 people were actually at the site with another million people trying to get there. So they blocked all the roads, and that's why the performers had to be helicoptered in. That's why the buses couldn't get through. That's why the port of sand couldn't be cleaned out because they couldn't get the pumper trucks in to clean them out. It was just a mess for that whole week. In that moment, weeks beforehand, it looked incredibly organized. You know, people were running around like bees, building things. The PA was extremely modern for the time. I mean, it looked, it looked like it was going to be almost magical. 
I mean, it sort of transcended its own inadequacies just because of what it became. When they were building the festival, they hadn't included ticket booths in the plans. Uh, I always heard that the fences went down and they never got around to collecting tickets, but it turns out that they never planned to collect tickets, that they had kind of overlooked the idea of putting up ticket booths. The rain was fairly short, couldn't have been more than half an hour. It was a deluge and it was, it was severe. It was also an absolute saving grace because all of a sudden, not only the performers, but the executive branch, <laughs> close quote, and all the staff and all of the audience, we all looked like a drowned rat. We all were in the same boat, possibly sinking or just floundering. Ladies and gentlemen, if you please, on the opening day, at about 6 o'clock in the morning, Michael turned to me and said, Oh, by the way, we've neglected to hire an MC, and you're it. And he said, Well, your first job is to move these people back at least uh, 100 feet, because when the pressure comes from behind, they'll be pressed up against the front of the stage. The first test was, well, ladies and gentlemen, hi, my name's Chip, and I'm going to be your guidance counselor for a short period of time, and I, I need to ask you, a favor. I'm going to ask you to just pick everything up and I need to have you back up. So, let's give it a try. One, two, three. Holy F. They're doing it. City McGee, please come immediately to backstage right, which is over here. I understand your wife is having a baby. Congratulations. Could we continue, please? With pleasure. Me and my pals in the airplane were only there for Saturday overnight and for the time that we played. I don't think that the festival organizers had any idea that it was going to be as massive a conglomeration of humanity as it turned out to be. And I think even under the best of circumstances, nobody could have really handled the logistics that half a million people require. I guess they just really didn't know what was going to happen. And once it happened, it was sensory overload. It was a very big mass of people sprawled out on the hillside. And you had to be careful where you walked because otherwise you would be stepping on people. When we were there, it seemed very large. You looked at the hillside and go, oh my God, I've never seen that many people. But it wasn't really till we got back and started reading some news reports that we found out the numbers and found out just how big it was and how unusual it was. There were a lot of different types of people there. There were people with beards, without beards. There were people with long hair or without long hair. Families were established with their tents, their campfires, individuals, groups. There were people that clearly just kind of came up to see the scene, and, and they were clearly um, music lovers. Just one big, happy sea of humanity. The hippies turned out to be the most peaceful, caring people. They were looking after each other. They were sharing food. They were being, being very, very gentle. And that is the moment when American culture just, just spun on a dime. 
and all of a sudden we went from violence um, to peace and love. It was a magnificent experience to see that happen. Now, one real great example that I always remembered of how people got along was, uh, I think it was Saturday afternoon, we went up behind the stage. There was a bit of a hillside. On our hillside, there might have been like 30 or 40 people spread out over this hillside. There were some kids sleeping about 30 feet in front of us down the hill a little bit. And I saw some biker guys come walking up the hillside, like leather jackets and boots, and, and they looked pretty rough and pretty tough. And... I was hoping there wasn't going to be any problem, you know, with these guys, because they just looked the usual biker guys looking for trouble. And uh, and they stopped by this kid who was sleeping, and then one of the bikers kind of tapped the kid with his boot. And I remember thinking, oh, what are they going to mess with that poor kid for? He's just sleeping there. And the kid turned and looked at him, and the guy said, hey, man, you better roll over. You're getting sunburned. On Saturday the National Guard started flying in emergency food supplies when they figured out there were so many people there and, you know, much more people than they had planned for food. So the National Guard was getting food from the hotels and flying that in. When things got a little tough in scheduling, and the roads, of course, were absolutely blocked, helicopters were of great value. So helicopters in and out were quite something and necessities, and we got some gifts for the crowd. One of them was a helicopter that was throwing flower petals at them. And the other was bottles of water, which even though they might have hit you <laughs> unsuspecting, were very gratefully received because her hydration was a major problem. And they were bringing it in to the side of the festival where we were camped out because they were going to have it distributed by the hog farm, which was giving out the free food. But they had these 50-gallon industrial kitchen-sized barrels of marinated lamb which was fantastic, except that the hog farm people were a macrobiotic vegetarian group, and they didn't cook meat. So they were giving away the meat to anybody nearby who wanted to cook it. So there I was, right next to the free food, with a campfire going, and so we started getting bowls and bowls of this marinated lamb, and I was making lamb stew, and I was making shish kebab, and just whatever way we could cook it up, people were coming by and putting it on sticks and just roasting it over the fire. And somebody came by with a gallon of red wine, and we poured some of that into the stew, and we drank the rest. When I think of Woodstock, I think of the people. I think of the little scenarios that were going on around us. I think of the smells, the sounds. I can sometimes still feel the damp, humid, hot air. Your senses were assaulted. It just was all around you. And there was this underlying hum of people's voices underneath the wonderful sound of music. Bobby loved Joe Cocker. But the performance that I can remember, I can remember Sly and the Family Stone. I can remember Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young. Jefferson Airplane came on about the time that we were getting up in the morning to walk out. We did not sleep a wink while waiting for that performance because you never knew when we were going to have to go on. They didn't say, well, you're going to go on at 6 in the morning, whatever. We were just constantly waiting in the wings. You're going to go on, you're not going to go on. So we didn't sleep at all. I frequently get asked to recall Grace Slick's words. She talks about good morning people morning maniac music, and then, then to paraphrase what she said, 
She said something about you've seen all the heavy acts, now you're going to hear us. All right, friends, you have seen the heavy groups, now you will see morning maniac music. We went on almost 18 hours late. We were supposed to be on Saturday night. We didn't go on until Sunday morning. When we were on stage with the band and you look out at an audience of that size, words almost fail me. I will never see a crowd that big, probably as long as I live. But just the energy from that mass of humanity is truly incredible. And I think that's part of what energized us for that early morning performance. If you think about a song like like Volunteers and how important it might have been at that festival, it sort of became an anthem. And it just certainly seemed to dovetail with the emotions of our generation in that time. I would say that Volunteers certainly reflected what probably most of the audience was feeling at that time. And to be able to play that song in front of a sympathetic audience that large was amazing. When we left the festival because we had to go to Manhattan to be on the Dick Cavett show, by that time that little back road that we drove in on had cars parked on both sides. And so my apology is to anybody who lost trim on their car as we were leaving that day, I apologize. In the 24 hours or so that we were at Woodstock, I I got to see a number of performances, but the one that sticks with me all these years later was Santana's performance. And it certainly ranks with one of the greatest live performances I've ever seen. My wife and her friend particularly wanted to see Janis Joplin, uh, so we went over to the hillside early enough to catch, I think, Creedence Clearwater and Janis Joplin, and then finally Sly and the Family Stone came on. And I remember jumping around the hillside, trying to stay warm, dancing around people's bonfires while Sly was on, because the music was just so good that you, you basically couldn't not dance to Sly and the Family Stone. And then again, there was a long interview, kind of getting colder again, and then finally The Who came on. They soared. They were amazing. Roger Daltrey had a fringe jacket where the fringes must have been at least two feet long, and he looked like an eagle flying around the stage with these fringes floating behind his arms. We sat on top of the hill, and because of the way the, the contour or the property is, you couldn't see the stage, but you could hear the music great. It was an amazing sight. They had a combination of red light and yellow light, which gave you an orange glow to everything. And the hundreds of thousands of of people sitting on that hill swaying to the music reminded me of a a wheat field with a slight breeze going as people swayed to the music. It was just an amazing sight. Ladies and gentlemen, the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Well, in our closing hours on the Monday morning, it was time for Mr. Hendricks. I I must apologize. I introduced him incorrectly. I introduced him as the Jimi Hendrix experience. And there was a great roar of applause with the basically 40, 50,000 people that were left. Everybody else had decided that Monday morning was time to go to work. James was the most suitable and most fitting end of Woodstock. Hey, hey, we're not going to get something straight. 
we, uh, we got tired of experiencing every once in a while. We explored our minds too much. So we decided to change the whole thing around and uh, call it Gypsy Sun and Rainbows. For sure, it's nothing but a band of gypsies. Before we go any further, I'd like to say, man, y'all really had a lot of patience. Three days worth. You proved to the world what can happen. A little bit of love and understanding in sounds. That was probably, I think, one of the most moving pieces of work I've seen. It was such a beautiful way to close the event. It was certainly a performance that would be with us and resonate for ages and ages, as it still does, you know. It was the absolute pinnacle of the festival in the best possible way we could end it. When I saw the Urkeline standing on the side of the hill, I was quite a long distance away, and I was walking up the hill, very early morning light. And I saw this couple standing there in the distance, and it was a lovely sort of scene, the way they were standing in kind of in front of a, a mountain in the background. I think after a long night of music, we just settled down for a little rest. And uh, I just got up with a blanket and was giving my girlfriend a big hug, which we still do every day. You can find us doing that. And I was stepping over bodies that were just waking up. And sure enough, when I got to be close enough and I did not speak to them at all, they were completely involved in each other, holding each other. Uh, looking into each other's eyes. It was, it was just a lovely, poetic moment. After miles of walking, a lot of folks just discarded their belongings. There were coolers and lawn chairs and suitcases and tents and backpacks and blankets just thrown and discarded along the way. And because we really hadn't planned ongoing, we didn't even think about bringing a blanket. So we picked it up, brought it with us, and that's the story of our pink blanket. I just raised my camera and took a few pictures and then walked away. Never spoke to them the whole time I was there. Did not, in fact, ever speak to them until 40 years later. Well, my name is Nick Urkeline. And I am Bobby Urkeline. And together we are the couple on the cover of the album of the original Woodstock concert. The first thing we recognized on that cover was the butterfly on the staff. Now, when we first walked into the site, we ran into a young man who was uh, having a very bad trip. His name was Herbie. He was wrapped in an army blanket, the one that Quirky was using. He had this butterfly staff and he was having a hard time. So we wrapped our arms around him and we walked him in with us and kept him with us until he became clear-headed enough to leave. When he left, he left that butterfly staff stuck in the ground like that. So that was the first thing we noticed. And then all of a sudden somebody said, look at the rest of the picture. We looked and we said, well, that's our blanket. No, 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 that's us. What are you, you gotta be kidding us. It was, uh, it was shocking to see yourself well, I feel very happy to be linked to Woodstock with my photograph of uh, 
New York Alliance wrapped in their nasty old muddy blanket on the side of a hill very early in the dawn morning. Who knew that that would become the signature picture? Because at the moment we went there, we were all expecting it to be about music, but it wound up being about peace and love. That picture really always did stand out. So, of course, I'm thrilled that that became the symbol of Woodstock. Woodstock and taking a, a moment's rest afterwards, you wondered if the impact that we've made is going to reach more than just this 456,000. And it certainly did. I don't think there could ever be a Woodstock 69 again. There was a trust and an innocence, and you know, the culture had its impact on us all. We went there as children, as uh, survivors of a decade of a certain sort. I think the vision and the message that Woodstock carries to this day just sort of evolved almost on its own. I think that it was just a moment in time when it all came together. People could hitchhike to Woodstock. You'd walk up the road, put your thumb out, and some stranger would pick you up and give you a ride. It was such a coming together of peace and love that people really got along, that strangers helped each other and had fun together with each other. And it was just about having a good time together. And I think that's why it has such longevity, because those kind of things don't happen very often. Let's start represents to me a moment that I wish our society could have preserved. It was a moment that we came and we all came away muddy and tired, but we came away with all of us, I think, that went to Woodstock, came away with a feeling that, you know, we can be a better world. I think that we were ready to come together, and we did with music. No one can argue about music. We were ready for Woodstock. This country needs another Woodstock right now. This world needs another Woodstock. For that brief period of time, I think we all became part of one movement. I think we all became became partners uh, to share the experience itself. The further I get from Woodstock, the more I realize what a phenomenon it was. It was pretty special for sure. It was a magnificent event, and its history lives on in the memories of all the people who attended and all that has been told to the, to the children of the people who attended. And it was one of those just great events, memorable and unforgettable. At this point in my life, to have something like that in your own personal history, if for nothing else, it's great to tell the kids. It was an honor. What a wonderful thing to be able to have been associated with. You know, all we did is the best we could. And we gave it our all. People don't talk about 15 different festivals. They talk about Woodstock, one festival where you all came together.
Gangster Chipmunk, Woodstock MC, Nick and Bobby Erkeline, Woodstock attendees, and the couple who appear on the iconic Woodstock album cover. Burke Herzl, photographer who took the picture of the Erkelines at Woodstock, Bob Gruen, rock and roll photographer and attendee of Woodstock, and Jorn McAlkinen, lead guitarist of Jefferson Airplane. Don't forget to rate and subscribe if you enjoyed the podcast, and make sure to share I Was There with friends. I'm Sophie Kay, and this was an Absolute Radio production. Next time on I Was There, gigs that change the world. What's it like to perform in front of 500,000 people? What's it like to be in a crowd that big, it brings a whole island to a standstill? You know, you play to the first 50 rows of people standing and those whose faces you can see, and the rest of them, you can't see them, and more importantly, they can't see you. I've never known it since, to get that extraordinary feeling of something going on. You felt you were part of a movement. We really dreamed of this being the largest gathering of human beings together and coming to listen to music. It's the Isle of Wight Festival, 1970.